As I begin today, I want to share with you a little story. It's a story of a man who decided one day that he really wanted to join a monastery. Uh, however, at this monastery, you were only allowed to say two words every 10 years. And so after 10 years in the monastery, the head monk summoned uh, this guy to him and he said, you've been with us for 10 years. What two words would you like to say? The monk replies, I'm hungry. So the head monk organizes for an extra ration to be given to him each day. After 20 years, the head monk calls him in again and asks, what two words would you like to say? The monk replies with, too cold. So the head monk organizes him to get another blanket. After 30 years, the head monk calls him in and says, what two words would you like to say? The monk replies, want to leave. <laughs> the head monk says, I'm not surprised. You've done nothing but complain since you've been here. <laughs> Now today, as we continue our time in Genesis, we're also going to be looking at what, is, what does it look like for us to want to join something. But for us this morning, our question is this, how can we join God's covenant family? What does it look like? What does it take for you and I to join into the family of God? And if you've been with us these last, well, for a while now in Genesis, you see, you will remember that God called Abraham, said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to, through you, bless the entire world. And every generation since Abraham has blown it. Like they've done terrible things, and yet God has remained faithful to them. For us, if we are not ancient Israelites, what does it look like for us to be allowed into the same covenant as well? That's what we are going to be looking at. And so if you have a Bible, would you join me in Genesis chapter 38? Genesis chapter 38. I know in Genesis, we've actually read quite a few difficult stories. Uh, today is also going to be another quite sad story of what people do left to their own devices, but yet God is faithful in the midst of that. Uh, I also want to say this. We are interrupting the Joseph story, if you will. Last week, we began the story of Joseph, Joseph which will take us through the end of Genesis. Uh, not Jesus' father, Joseph, but an Old Testament guy named Joseph. Uh, last week, we were thinking he's the favorite son of Jacob, and so he's the 11th out of the 12th son. However, he was like Jacob's favorite son. He got to be the manager of all the other sons. They were jealous of him. Uh, Joseph had dreams that one day his entire family would bow down to him, and his, his, all of his brothers were like, what are you talking about? And so Joseph, uh, Genesis 37 ends with Joseph being sold into slavery. And so Genesis 38 focuses now on his brother Judah. You would assume, if you haven't read the story, that you thought maybe Joseph would be the main character in God's covenant family. But now that he's sold into slavery, chapter 38 focuses in on Judah. Before we go back to Joseph, uh, Judah, other than Joseph, is the son that's talked about most throughout the rest of chapter uh, Genesis. And he's the one who's in line to really be the head of the family once their father dies. So you have uh, Reuben, who was disqualified for sleeping with one of his father's maidservants. You have Simeon and Levi, who were disqualified for really leading a massacre of an entire town that we talked about a few weeks ago. So Judah is the fourth oldest son, but he's the one who seems to be in line for the inheritance and for the leadership of the family. With Joseph sold into slavery as readers, if you haven't read the story, you and I assume, well, Judah's the one that's going to take center stage, and he does here. He does here. And of course, Joseph and Judah will matter because they'll contrast as well at the end of Genesis with the role that Judah is given from Jacob. But for today, we'll start in chapter 38, verse 1. Here's what it says. At that time, Judah left his brothers and settled near Adulamite named Hira. Uh, there, Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He took her as his wife and he slept with her. So at that time, after Joseph is sold into slavery, uh, Judah ends up uh, settling in a place called Adulamite and he finds a Canaanite woman he, he marries. 
He, he, he marries him. Now, the time span of chapter 38 is debated. Uh, I am persuaded that actually 38 kind of goes over the next couple of chapters. The author here is just kind of doing Judah's story all at once. But I actually think it actually maps on top of the next couple of chapters. But again, he's just focusing on Judah's story here. Now, I also want to say something else that's pretty significant. In verse 2, it says this. There Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite woman named Shua, and he took her as a wife. Now, if you've been with us for any length of time in Genesis, and you notice anything particular about those words, a gold star, you're becoming a little Bible nerd. But, but here's what's happening. It says Judah saw and Judah took. Judah saw and he took. So if you've been with us, you know by now when people see something and take something in Genesis, it means something bad is going to happen. They, they take something that looks good in their eyes, and it's going to lead to disaster. It's happened many times already. The first time it was Adam and Eve where they saw from the fruit of the tree that, that they were not supposed to take from and they took from it. Another great example is Abraham with his nephew Lot. Uh, where they, had, they were pretty wealthy. They had a lot of people and a lot of animals. And so Abraham says to Lot, well, do you want to go this way or this direction? And Lot saw the, the, ant, the land that looked good to him and he took it. And it led to disaster here. Uh, uh, Judah sees a Canaanite woman and he takes her. Now, of course, we know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all told not to marry a woman from the Canaanite region because the Israelites are not supposed to uh, ingratiate themselves in the culture of the Canaanites and the worship of the Canaanites. Uh, they were not supposed to do so. And yet this is what Judah does here. Verse 3 then says this, she conceived, so uh, Judah's wife conceived and gave birth to a son. He named him Er. She conceived again, gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to another son and named him Shelah. It was at Cheziv that she gave birth to him. So Judah gets married. He ends up having three sons, which is important for this story. Verse 6, Judah got a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now, Er, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife, perform your duty as her brother-in-law, and produce offspring for your brother. Now, here's the thing. We are, we are not told what Judah or what Er did that was so evil that caused God to judge him, but he does apparently something so terrible that God strikes him down. And then Onan, which is Er's brother, has now the responsibility to marry uh, Er's wife and pro provide offspring for his deceived deceased brother. Deceived, Deceased brother, heir. Now, I know in our culture, this sounds weird. Like, so you have a brother, he marries someone, your brother dies, and like, you're going to supposed to marry his, his wife now. That's kind of weird. In the ancient world, this is very common practice. Now, this is actually what's known as a Leverite marriage, which basically involves a childless widow marrying her husband's brother, if she has a brother, or if he has a brother, to provide an heir for the dead husband. So this was significant. Again, it's a whole different cultural setting than what we have today. Uh, this meant that inheritance in the land that the brother might have taken for themselves could stay in the family. Also in the ancient world, protection for a widow in old age, she needed children. Uh, it ensured crimes were paid out to her family uh, and many other things. You would need kind of a man of the family because everything legal went through the husband, the patriarch, the leader of the family. And so it was custom in the ancient world and for the ancient Israelites as well that if 
a man dies and he, he has not uh, had no sibling or had no children with his wife and he has a brother, his brother would step in, marry uh, his ex-wife so that she would not be destitute, would provide offspring. And those offspring, however, would not be considered the new uh, brother's offspring. They would be considered the deceased brother's offspring so that his family lineage could continue. So verse 9, but here's what happens. Uh, but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, like in a kind of a legal sense, if you will. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he released his semen on the ground so that he would not produce offspring for his brother. What he did was an evil was evil in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. So Onan here does not perform, perform his role or his duty. The question is why? Uh, the answer is not because like, well, you might be thinking like, well, maybe he just didn't want to have kids. Um, that's not why he didn't perform his duty here. Uh, the reason he doesn't want to have kids is because they aren't technically, or sorry, they aren't legally his. Like his inheritance would not go to them. What seems to be an issue in this particular story is the issue of the birthright. So again, just track with me here for a second. Heir was the firstborn of Judah. And if you're the firstborn, you receive double the inheritance of all the other sons, and you receive certain rights and privileges and responsibilities for the family. So if Onan has a son through Tamar, which was Heir's brother or Heir's husband originally, the son again would be considered Heir's son and not Onan's son, and therefore Heir's son would receive the birthright when Judah dies. So Judah's firstborn heir has died, but if Heir has offspring, uh, Heir's offspring kind of take the place of the firstborn. In other words, Onan refuses to have children with Tamar because he wants to be on top of the family tree, if you will. He was the second born of Judah, but he wants to be the one who's going to run the family when Judah dies. And of course, on top of maybe not even having offspring through her, he still uses her, right? He still sleeps with her, but he will not have offspring with her, right? He doesn't want heirs' offspring to rise to prominence. He wants himself and his family to rise to prominence. And so Onan does an evil thing, and the Lord brings judgment on him as well, and he dies. Now, that being said, I do want to point something out that maybe is different for us as modern readers than, than pretty much most of people, at least until the time of Jesus in ancient history, would have thought. Uh, one of the things I think is helpful for us to understand as we read texts like this is this, that it is God's grace, not his judgment, that should surprise us. Okay, it is God's grace and mercy and kindness. It is not his judgment that should surprise us when we read stories like this, right? What I think is interesting, what you might be considering as you and I read Genesis 38, is twice now that we are told that God kills a son for his wickedness. Now, here's the thing, right? We're not exactly sure what Heir did, and so maybe we might, 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 like, might let that slide. Right? He might have done something really bad. We're not sure, and so sure, maybe God was justified in killing him. But we know what Onan did, right? Even if we recognize, although I do think it's hard for us to fully appreciate and understand in an ancient world what Onan's role was supposed to be in taking his brother's wife and having kids from them, but even if we recognize, yeah, like he shouldn't have done that, he should have done the right thing, uh, what, what he did was deceitful and wrong. You and I might also think, though, should he deserve to die from it? Like, yeah, he did something wrong, but like to be killed, that seems kind of harsh. And here's the, here's the deal. I would submit to all of us here this morning that the only reason, whether you're a Christian or not, that, be, that you and I become uncomfortable with God's actions here is because of Jesus. The only reason we're uncomfortable is because of Jesus. 
And here's what I mean. Our world has been so influenced by the teachings of Christ and Scripture that we assume grace and are surprised by judgment. Right? We assume grace that God or the gods or the universe or whatever's out there, like they love us and they care for us and they've got a great plan for our life, right? We just got to follow the stars. Like we assume that God is going to be kind to us and we are surprised when God uh, judges anything. And so I just want to lay this before us here this morning that there is no other major religious thought or philosophy that espoused this idea prior to Jesus. There is not a single ideological thought process in the ancient world that assumed that God actually cares and loves his people, except what we see throughout the Old Testament and leading us towards Jesus. In fact, what the most of the world have thought in this time is that God is creator, that he is in charge, and to reject or dishonor him should result in judgment, right? If we reject and dishonor what God would have us to do, it should result in judgment, we, however, assume that grace is the first option. The question is, why? Well, again, we've been influenced by the teachings of Christ. And I also would think, I think part of the reason why we don't think God should strike us down and we are uh, maybe concerned with texts like this is that when we think these people don't deserve it or when we think maybe we don't deserve God's, God's harsh judgment, the question is why? And typically it's because, well, compared to other things, we're not as bad. Like and compared to what's going on in Israel and Hamas right now, like we're not a warlords and so we're not as bad. Like we're not Putin and, and we're not Hitler, you know, some some uh, stereotypes typical historical people we talked about, like maybe those people deserve judgment, but we don't. But here's the problem with thoughts like that. We are comparing ourselves to people and not to God. Listen, if God is creator, if he has made all things, if he has made us and we have fallen short of what he has asked us to do, then of course we deserve to be judgment. Look right at me. Hitler ain't the baseline. Right? Your boss that is a jerk to you ain't the baseline. Your friend that stabbed you in the back ain't the baseline. God is. And when we fall short of his standard, this is what we deserve. And for God to do anything other than this is grace. It is grace. And so here's what happens next. Verse 11. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought he might die too like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. So, so what's happening here is that Judah, um, he doesn't seem to know the reason for the death of his two sons. In fact, he seems to think it has to do with Tamar, that she must be possessed, something bad must be, be uh, happening with her. And so she's the reason that my sons keep dying. And so what he does is he sends her away until his thirdborn son is old enough to take her as a wife, which again, I know it's weird for us. Like that's going to be an age gap, whatever. Like I get that's weird, but this was just ancient practice, right? When his son, his third son is a marriageable age, she, he would take her as a wife. So he sends her away, which by the way, by the way, in the ancient world, you already know something's off here because it was the role, there was the responsibility of the father-in-law to take care of a widow. So in the ancient world, when you got married, uh, the wife, uh, the woman became legally part of her husband's family. So he actually shouldn't send her away. She should actually be staying and living with his family. And so he, again, so he, he abandons his responsibility as his father-in-law and he sends her away. The reason why for it says, for he thought now, as we'll see in a second, that Judah actually has no intention of giving his youngest son to Tamar since his two sons died while married to her. 
Now, we know as readers, the sons were the problem, not Tamar, but still, he's actually kind of lying to her. He says, when my son is old enough, you'll marry. Actually, he has no intention of making that happen at all. Because in fact, here's what happens next, verse 12. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had finished mourning, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite went up to Timnah to his sheep shears. Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So he t- she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance of Eniam, which is on the way to Timnah. For she thought, uh, though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. So what happens in verse 12, it's translated after a long time. You could also translate it after many days. We don't know exactly the timeline that has transpired, but we do know it is long enough to know that, Ta- or it's long enough for Tamar to know that Judah is not going to take her back to marry her son, Sheila. Like, like she knows this isn't going to happen. And so this puts her in an extremely vulnerable position as a woman and a widow in the ancient world, especially since Judah w- sent her away and is not looking after her. Uh, her prospects for life are really glim. In fact, again, it was actually practiced in the ancient world that in the event of the death of his of a father-in-law's sons and any other sons that he has, that the father-in-law would take his son's widow as a wife if there were no more sons to marry. Now, it's worth knowing that this is not how later Israelite practice and law would read, but certainly this would have been a thought by Tamar. She would have had it this time, right? If you're not going to give me to your sons, well, then at least you have to take me in, in marriage so that I'm not destitute and on my own. Right? Uh, that's what she would have thought. So, so Judah is traveling to Timnah. This, is, this would have been an annual, maybe, maybe a semi-annual tr- uh, trip where he's taking all of his flocks to get sheared and probably also to mate uh, to produce more flocks in the coming season. And so he's traveling to this area. He probably does this every year. Uh, Tamar hears about it, and she sets up a way to uh, meet with, um, with uh, Judah. Verse 16, it says this. He went over to her and said, come, let me sleep with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me for sleeping with me? I will send you a young goat from my flock, he replied. But she said, only if you leave something with me until you send it. What should I give you, he asked. She answered, your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her, and he slept with her. And she became pregnant by him. She got up and left, then removed her veil and put her widow's clothes back on. So uh, what happens here is that she disguises herself as a prostitute uh, to trick Judah. Now, Judah, not knowing it is Tamar, asks to sleep with her. We'll see in just a second that Judah is uh, participating in a fertility ritual with what he thought was a cult prostitute. So this is not just Judah trying to sleep with a prostitute, although he clearly has these desires. It's also probably a cultic ritual as you're going to shear the sheep and as you're going to uh, mate your cattle, that you would go through these practices that, that you thought would bring favor from the gods and produce fertility for your flocks. And so there's also a religious, a Canaanite religious practice that Judah is associating with this. And so again, not only is he seeking out a prostitute, but he's also doing so to bring favor from the Canaanite gods. 
right? He is not at all where we would hope he would be. And I just want to say this, uh, the text doesn't say this, uh, but there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that this is not the first time that Judah has done something like this. There's no way, right? Sexual sin is rarely a one-time thing, especially if you have the mindset to seek it out on purpose. Like, it doesn't seem to be like falling into temptation or confused. Like, he sees her. He, he sees a prostitute. He knows what he wants to do. There's no doubt in my mind, this is not the first time he's done this. Like, I do this every year. I do this all the time because I want to get my flocks to be fertile. So he does this. And so as a promise for payment that a sheep is actually coming because Tamar does not trust Judah, Judah um, essentially gives her the equivalent of like your modern day driver's license and passport, right? Something that identifies you only with you and that you actually need for a lot of things in your day-to-day life. She doesn't trust him. And so she asks for something that's a big asking price that she knows he has to come back and get. Or if not, that she has to give him a heavy payment. So these things would have been identified with Judah. And so therefore, Judah has to make good on his payment or he's not going to get these things that he has given her. Verse 20, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get back the items he had left with the woman, he could not find her. He asked the men of the place, where is the colt prostitute who was beside the road of Inium? There has been no colt prostitute here, they answered. So the Adulamite returned to Judah saying, I couldn't find her. And besides, the men of the place said, there has been no cult prostitute here. Judah replied, let her keep the items for herself. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send this young goat, but you couldn't find her. Now, uh, we are meant to see irony here that Judah has the honor to keep his obligation to a prostitute, but not to his own daughter-in-law. He's trying to keep his word to a prostitute, which is his daughter-in-law, but he doesn't know it, but not what he's supposed to do to his daughter-in-law. And so when Judah's messenger goes and can't find the woman, the woman, Judah essentially says, let's not worry about it. Uh, He probably doesn't want to be embarrassed, the fact that like a prostitute took all these things from him. And so he doesn't want everyone to know that like he got got one pulled pulled over on him by a prostitute. So he just kind of lets it go. He doesn't want to ruin his reputation in that way, that a a prostitute took, took off with his valuable possession. So he's like, well, we tried, whatever. I couldn't find her. It is what it is. And then verse 24, it gets worse. It says this, after about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar, who has been acting like a prostitute, and now she is pregnant. Bring her out, Judah said, and let her be burned to death. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message. I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And she added, examine them, whose signet ring, cord, and staff are these. So again, when Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant, which by the way, after discarding her out of his family, and then lying to her about sending his son to marry her when he gets older, right? After he completely abandons her, leaves her on her own, he all of a sudden now is concerned with Tamar's actions. All of a sudden he cares what Tamar did. Right? He wants her to be punished by death for what she has done, yet, of course, he has no issue with his own equally immoral behavior. Right? He's good with what he did, but he ain't good with what she did. Now, uh, by the way, when you read and reread the Bible, this story is also meant to bring to mind another well-known Old Testament story of King David, who does this something very similar with Bathsheba. 
there's actually a lot of parallels we won't get into this morning, but King David, he's the king of Israel this time. He sees another woman's, another man's wife. He takes her. He sleeps with her. He, she becomes pregnant. Then he tries to get her, uh, her husband to kind of come back from battle and sleep with her, but he won't because he's not going to dishonor his, his people who also are in battle at that time. And so long story short, he kills him. To, he kills uh, Bathsheba's husband to cover up what he's done. And then the prophet Nathan comes to him and kind of confronts him and tells him a story uh, about a, a rich man who had all this cattle and all these sheep was traveling and he entered into a city and he, met, and he found this poor man who only had one goat and he used this goat for everything, for milk, and he would shear the goat for clothing. And this rich man who had everything he could ever want took this one, one poor man's goat uh, for his party. And Nathan asked King David, what should happen to the rich man? And King David's like, well, he needs to be God. He needs to be punished for what he's done. And Nathan says, you are that man, right? That's what's happening here, right? Tamar, or Judah is that man. And of course, there's another link to the story of David we'll see in a minute, but I want to just read to you what Judah's response is, verse 26. Judah recognized them, so all the things that identified that Judah was the one that slept with her, and said, she is more in the right than I, since I did not give her my son, Shelah, and he did not know her intimately again. Now, we read this story, and we think, prostitution, how dare you, Tamar, a terrible person. Uh, Judah rightly recognizes. No, actually, he's kind of almost saying that, like, that Tamar actually doesn't, hasn't done anything wrong. It was me. I abandoned her. I lied to her. She did the only thing she could to survive, right? She has done nothing wrong. It is on me. I'm the one. And so he did not know her intimately again. In other words, he never slept with her again. He did not repeat his behavior. Verse 27, and then this. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. So he did not kill her, obviously, because he was the one who did this. Verse 28, as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread around it, announcing this one came out first. It's a big deal in the ancient world to know who the firstborn was. So this one has the firstborn, 20, verse 29. But then he pulled his hand back and out came his brother. And she said, what a breakout you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread tied around his hand, came out, and his name was, he was named Zerah. So uh, Tamar ends up giving birth to twins. The firstborn, who then becomes, who then becomes the secondborn, goes back in. Uh, his, his wrist is out. So he's technically the firstborn, even though technically he's going to be the secondborn. Um, how, you might be wondering, like, how does this work? Like, how do you, like, come out and go back in? I'm not going to mansplain it to you. Um, I actually have no idea how this works. I do know that this stuff like this can happen. Like, I've been told. Like, I didn't Google it because, you know, I ain't going to do that. But I was told this is possible, okay? So the firstborn actually becomes the secondborn. And then secondborn comes out first, and his name is Perez. So it's Perez, even though he comes out first, is technically the secondborn, and he prevails against his older brother. Just as Tamar has broken out from Judah's deceitfulness and finally has, a chill, has children of her, her own, and he, she has Perez, Perez and Zerah, and as we'll see in a second, Perez is actually very significant. He's very significant. But, but first, let me just say this. Um, after Joseph, who we read about last week, and we're going to pick up his story again next week, Judah gets the most airtime, if you will, out of all of Jacob's sons in Genesis after Joseph. That Judah actually comes 
to matter quite a lot. As, we learned, as we've learned previously, that because, for one thing, the, the, the Messiah, Jesus, his bloodline comes from that of Judah. Not from Joseph's line, but from Judah's line. In fact, in Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob is on his deathbed and he's doing all of his pronouncements for all of his sons, it is Judah and not Joseph that gets the, bre- the blessing of the birthright, that gets the blessing of the oldest son, even though Judah is the fourth born. Again, El- Reuben was disqualified, as well as Simeon and Levi also likely passed over for what we read about a couple weeks ago in the slaughter they did in the city of Shechem. So Judah, who plays a part in selling Joseph, Joseph to sl- slavery, mind you, and is here, is deceitful, uh, and is not God-honoring multiple times over, I think a question for us is like, why doesn't God strike down Judah like he struck down his first two sons? Like, I think that's a legitimate question for us to ask. He is the one from which our Messiah comes from. Now, as we'll see over these next couple of chapters, Judah does mature and improve, if you will, but he's done some awful things in chapter 38. We see that he fails as a son of the covenant, where he's intermarrying with the Canaanites and he's behaving like them. He fails as a father. He has multiple wicked sons that God strikes down for their evil. And he fails as a father-in-law, right? He deceives Tamar and sends her away and then uses her, right? He has failed in every major category that matters. And yet Judah becomes a major player in the story of the Old Testament leading to our Messiah. And what does Judah's story show us? Well, it shows us this, that any story can be redeemed by God. Any story can be redeemed by God. We are now fourth generations removed from Abraham, and every generation, including Abraham, has blown it, and yet here God is. In fact, we are told in the genealogies of Genesis, Ruth, and First Chronicles, we were told this three times, that King David, who is the greatest of all the Israelite kings, is the 10th generation from Perez. So King David is actually going to come from Perez. This is significant because in the Old Testament, 10 is a number signifying uh, completeness and wholeness. In other words, uh, Perez is a, an important part of the Israelite story as he leads to the greatest of all Israelite kings and, of course, to our Messiah as well. Now, this, by the way, is just one of the many dysfunctional birth stories that God uses to lead to our redemption. And we've already read a number of them in Genesis. Again, remember, it is Judah, not Joseph, who is singled out to carry the royal bloodline of the Messiah. Though it is Joseph, as we'll see in these next couple weeks, and not Judah, who is the one who is noble and God-honoring and the one that we should actually emulate in how we live. In fact, it was Tamar, the Canaanite, who was the non-Israelite, who remains loyal to the family and is continued, and it is through her that the continued lineage, and and through her, she essentially saves the bloodline while Judah acts like a Canaanite. So Judah acts like a Canaanite, and you have a Canaanite who's loyal to the Israelites. In fact, this is significant in the the Gospel of Matthew, you have the genealogy of Jesus. So in Matthew chapter 1, you have an abbreviated genealogy of Jesus. There are 28 names in this genealogy. It is through uh, Jesus' mom's side, so it's through through Mary's side. And, and, And in this genealogy, you actually have four women that are included in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, this is significant for a lot of reasons. I'll just tell you two. One, in the ancient world, when it came to genealogy, women didn't matter. 
Women didn't matter. I'm not saying that was a good thing. I'm just saying, again, legally, if you put a woman's name in a genealogy, an ancient person would say, why is this here? This does not give me the information that I need. Not only does Matthew include four women in the genealogy of Jesus, that every single one of these women that are included in the genealogy of Jesus, none of them are Israelites, and all of them have sexual baggage attached to them. You have, um, you have Rahab, who was a prostitute. Uh, she was a prostitute at the Tower of Jericho. You have Tamar, you have Ruth, and you have Bathsheba. Now, other than Rahab, the other three that have kind of sexual things linked to them, they aren't their fault necessarily, but they're still there. So you have four non-Israelite women in the genealogy of Jesus. And again, if you've been with us at least the last couple of weeks, by now you know that Abraham and his descendants, none of them deserve to be chosen by God. Like none of them deserve when, when they act like this to be chosen by God. Every generation we've read so far from Abraham has blown it and deserves to be cut off, but God is faithful. And so listen to me, whether it's the story of Judah or any of the stories we've been reading about lately, and many of them have been hard to read, here is what I think should jump out to us, right? That if you don't think you belong in the family of God, join the club. If you don't think you belong, here's what I've done, here's what's happened to me, you haven't met my crazy uncle, right? you, probably have, you probably don't have the family of Abraham beat, and yet there God is. Here's the deal, like I know, man, I know that sometimes it feels like I don't deserve to be here, I can't believe lightning didn't strike me on the way in, like I've done all of these awful things, like I feel like an outsider the way I dress, the, the things I've, saw, I've seen, the things I've, I've done, like I don't believe, I don't fit in, like I, I feel like an outsider. Right, and I don't. So I don't know if you've ever, you've, maybe you've ever felt like an outsider, maybe at church or just anywhere else. Like you feel like you don't belong. I, I remember my, my freshman year of, of college. I went into college as a music major, and I was studying jazz piano, which probably sounds a lot more impressive than it is. Um, I grew up, I'm white, in case you couldn't tell. Uh, so I grew up playing piano, but not playing jazz. I took some jazz lessons my senior year of high school, and I was like, this is awesome. And so I, I joined the jazz program. The problem is um, I didn't play jazz piano. I, I could play piano, but I couldn't play jazz. And so I felt so behind everybody else. Now, there wasn't a lot of, there were actually only two jazz piano players at, at, at UNCW at the time, and so I got place in like the best jazz band. It was, it was the saxtet. It was six saxophones, uh, drums, piano, and bass. And it was awesome. But I felt like so over my head, like all these people knew what they were doing. Now, granted, uh, the thing is like the professor, the guy who taught it, never made me feel like an outsider. No one else in the class was anything but kind and encouraging. But I just felt like I don't belong. Like I felt like I'm not good enough to be here. And nobody made me feel that way. It was just my, like, I'm like, I haven't measured up. I haven't trained. I'm not as good as these other people. And so, so hear me this morning. I'm not saying that your story or my story is going to be as cool or as amazing as having the Messiah come from your family line, if you feel like an outsider, especially since Jesus already come, so he can't. Um, but I am saying, I am saying that you have no idea what God might do. You have no idea what God might do in your lifetime and the lifetime of the generations to come because of how he used you. If you think you don't belong in the family of God, join the club. They didn't deserve it either. And so the question you might be asking then is how then do we join God's covenant family? If we've blown it, if we've fallen short in our own lives, just like Judah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and everyone else has, how can we belong into God's covenant family? And here's the answer you and I need to remember that acceptance into God's family is not based on what you have done, but based on what Jesus has done for you. 
Your acceptance, your invitation into God's family is not based on what you have done and you're trying really hard and your efforts and you're promising to be a better person in the future, but it is holy and only offered. It is only based on what Jesus has done for you. One of the things we say often here at New City Church is that scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Uh, by the way, in the next couple of weeks, as we continue the story of Joseph, you're going to see some just amazing ways of how Joseph is actually pointing us towards Jesus. But what we see so far is that nobody that God chooses deserves it. Nobody that God, God redeems deserves it. It is always and ever and only because of his grace. That's, that's all it is. In fact, one of the things that I find interesting, especially as you and I read through the book of Genesis, is that you cannot actually read the Old Testament and see a God as anything but full of love and mercy. Like, if you've actually read it and studied it, that's, you can't. Now, what, so what, times, so what happens sometimes is people read a story here or there completely devoid of its context and historically of how God has been faithful, and we see, man, God is angry and spiteful and mean. It's like, Bro, he should have he done this from day one. Like, I, I say this all the time. I think if you and I could have, like, a camera into the ancient world, you and I would not be uncomfortable with the times that God brought judgment down. What you and I would be uncomfortable with was how long he waited. I am, there's no doubt in my mind that God continually is gracious and kind and forgiving to people who do not deserve it. Do not deserve it. And so, listen, if you're here this morning and you're like, man, I, I don't deserve it. You're right. And if you're here this morning and you're like, well, I think I've had a pretty good week, you still need Jesus because you're not going to have a good week probably next week or next month. It's going to get, at some point, you're going to do something dumb, just like you've done in the past. You and I need Jesus. And so listen, it's not about our trying hard, our promising to be better. It's about us looking towards the Messiah, looking back at the Messiah, there, looking forward to the Messiah in Genesis, who would come and would one day defeat the serpent, who would cut off the head of the snake so that you and I could experience the redemption, the grace, and the mercy of God. If you're feeling, man, it's been a heavy week, you've made some bad decisions, or maybe life has just been hard to you, you need to remember this morning that God's kindness and grace and love to you is not based on your behavior. It's based on his love towards you. So of course, how we live matters. Uh, living lives of holiness is an important thing to do, but that's not where we start. We start with accepting God's grace in our lives, and in response to his kindness, we live lives worthy of the gospel to which he has invited us into. Acceptance into God's family is not based on what you have done, what Abraham has done, or thank goodness what Judah has done. It is based on what Jesus has done for you.